Hi, my name's Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. A quick apology, just in case this episode sounds a little different to the others. My partner in the podcast, who does all the editing, is off on a well-deserved break enjoying himself on a beach. So I'll be editing myself for the very first time. I hope the Philippines are treating you well, Connor. This episode is all about the last two sons of Clothar. At least, if you believe Gundervold. He's been causing problems for Guntram for a couple of years at this point. But now that he's firmly established himself in the south of Gaul, and has been proclaimed king, things are inevitably going to heat up. As Guntram tries to stamp out dissent, Gundervold is going to shift and wriggle his way into any soft point or situation where he could diminish his rival and build his own power. And with significant nobles and clergy on his side, he's in with a good shot. Let's see how it goes in episode 46, The Last Sons of Clothar. While Gundervold was consolidating his position in the south and plotting his next move, Guntram was still struggling to subdue the Loire region. The big thorn in his side was Poitiers. Since its ravaging by the men of Bourges, the other major city in the area, Tours, had stuck to its oath of allegiance to Guntram. Poitiers, on the other hand, seems to have been unhappy in its submission. It is not exactly clear why, though. Despite Gregory's personal connections to the Austrasian royal house, Poitiers seems to have been more firmly in the pro-Childebert II camp. Gregory singles out their bishop, Morovius, and records his personal defiance, including his hostile reception of some of Guntram's envoys. This would suggest to the reader that Morovius was a ringleader in this dispute, and it was his stubbornness and lack of diplomacy that inflamed the conflict. But it must be noted that Gregory disliked Morovius for other reasons, including the bishop's conflicts with the Holy Queen and Gregory's friend Radegund. Putting the bishop front and centre may have been a reflection of the political reality in Poitiers, Gregory was certainly in a similar position in Tours, but it also may be a reflection of Gregory's personal bias against the bishop. Whatever the reason, when Guntram amassed a vast army and sent part of it to ensure Poitiers' submission, the city defied him once again. No one comes out of this situation looking great. Gregory notes that by defying the king, Poitiers was breaking its oath of loyalty to Guntram, less than a year after making it. On the other side, though, he also notes that the army sent by Guntram ravaged the countryside, which is mostly acceptable in Gregory's mind, but they also targeted churches, which is definitely not. After the troops had, quote, invaded the lands belonging to Poitiers, looted them, set light to the buildings and massacred the inhabitants, end quote, apparently several times over, the city finally capitulated and swore loyalty to Guntram once again. It's hard to see what the leading citizens of Poitiers were hoping to achieve by holding out, since we don't know much about what Childebert was doing. These actions in the Loire region, because the army also looted the lands around Tours, 
despite their continued loyalty to Guntram, seem to be missing some kind of context. To make an educated guess, I would say that Childbert likely still had agents in the area who were making promises that he could not keep. Remember, his man Gararic had promised to return with an army to oppose the forces of Guntram and defend Poitiers last time around. To us, this seems like an obvious lie. To do a thing like this would invite open war between Guntram and Childebert, something the younger king could not afford. But perhaps the people of the time felt differently. We must note our own perspective bias. Not only are we getting everything through Gregory's lens, but also we are modern observers looking back on events with at least some knowledge of how they worked out. A lot of rebellions look foolish throughout history, and certainly some were. But without an idea of the situation on the ground, we must be careful in our criticism of the decisions of these people. Besides Childebert, it is also possible the people of Poitiers thought of another saviour. Gregory records for us that Gundevold was thinking of moving to Poitiers, a move that would see him extending his power base from the south and deep into the heart of central Gaul. From there, he could have threatened Guntram's shaky hold on Neustria, and possibly linked up with Childebert. In fact, we get another hint about the odd relationship between Gundevold and Childebert, because while Childebert was nominally Guntram's heir and ally, Gundevold does not seem to be acting with those facts in mind. As the rebel king was kicking around in central Gaul, he apparently demanded an oath of allegiance from all of the cities in the area, but it came with an odd wrinkle. The cities that had belonged to Guntram or Chilperic were to swear to him personally, but he demanded that those cities which had once been Sigebert's must swear their allegiance to Childebert. Now I must note here that this does not clear up the mystery of Gundevold's relationship with the Austrasian king. This move could indicate that Childebert and Gundevold had come to an understanding, and perhaps even a secret alliance against Guntram. Childebert had been demanding his father's former lands in central Gaul since he had reached his majority, and if Gundevold was willing to simply give them to the young king, it might be a sign that this was a prearranged deal between the two. But, on the other hand, this is not definitive. Gundevold could simply be demanding this as a demonstration of friendship. It is worth noting that he also did not control the most important cities, Tours and Poitiers. Both were controlled by Guntram at the time. And both had already wanted to swear loyalty to Childebert, so the proclamation was more of an acknowledgement of reality than any kind of radical move. Throughout this period, Childebert is silent. Suspiciously silent. I would argue that this is a fairly strategic move on the part of the young king. Whether or not he was secretly in cahoots with Gundevold is actually kind of immaterial, because the conflict was benefiting him immensely. This might seem like an odd statement on the face of it. After all, he was Guntram's heir, and every piece of land Gundevold took from Guntram was also a potential piece of his inheritance. 
Guntram was childless. Gundervold was not. If the rebel king managed to carve a kingdom out for himself, it would not pass to Childebert on his death, but to his own sons. But the Merovingians seemed to be always playing 4D chess in this period. Childbert knew that his position was a lot more precarious since the death of Chilperic. Before that, he had been able to play the two senior kings off of one another. Both had been aging, and had needed him as the only legitimate Merovingian heir left. But then Fredegund had borne Chilperic a son, the king had died, and Childebert had been muscled out of the situation by Guntram. He was now in danger. If Guntram made the child Clothar his heir, or even managed to have another son himself, Childebert would be cut out. He needed to weaken Guntram's position, and once again make himself indispensable. Guntram's actions and words towards his envoys had harmed his prestige, and also possibly his feelings. If Gundervold was able to draw Guntram's attention away, and even weaken the king significantly, well, that was to Childebert's advantage. Plus, it must be noted that Guntram had already accused Childebert's men of helping Gundervold. The older king must have been aware that he was in a somewhat precarious position. Holding Burgundy and Neustria, he held the core of Gaul, but it was essentially a long, vulnerable swath running diagonally across the state. If Childebert decided to join the fight against Guntram, then the senior king would face enemies on both sides, the northeast and southwest. His territory could quickly become indefensible, and he'd be in serious danger. This is probably why he was so aggressive in subduing the crucial cities along the Loire, and why Childebert's silence was so menacing. By not announcing his intentions openly, he could pressure a more scared Guntram into major concessions. We'll see how this plan works out next episode. For the moment, back to Gundervold. He had heard that Guntram was raising an army and had decided against marching on Poitiers, instead moving around central Gaul and trying to stamp his authority on the other parts of the region. Then, he suddenly moved south. Making a beeline back down through Gaul, he had one target, Toulouse. He sent messages ahead of him to the Bishop of Toulouse, Magnolf, instructing the bishop to receive him with all due honours of a king. But Magnolf decided to take a stand, and his speech to the townsfolk got to the point right away. Quote, We know that Guntram and his nephews are kings. Where this man comes from, we have no idea. End quote. This shows that the main problem for Gundervold was still that no one really believed that he was a son of Clothar. The townsfolk were initially willing to put up a fight, but when Gundervold's large army arrayed itself outside of their city, they lost heart and instead let Gundervold enter. The usurper king sat down with the bishop Magnolf. The bishop was still defiant. 
Quote, You maintain that you are the son of King Clothar, but we have no way of telling whether or not this is true. It seems incredible to me that you can carry out what you have planned. End quote. Even faced by the king himself and his most powerful supporters, Magnolf was unwilling to bend. He just refused to believe Gundervold was really a Merovingian, and if he wasn't, then he would never succeed in his plans to become a real king. Quote, I am indeed the son of King Clothar, Gundervold replied coolly, and I am determined to take over my share of the kingdom without any more delay. I shall march on Paris with all speed, and there I shall establish the seat of my government. End quote. So not only was he going to stick to his story, but Gundervold was going to seize the most important Merovingian capital, the city of Clovis and Clothar, just to really prove his point. Magnolf shot back. If you succeed in carrying out what you say, then it is indeed true that no prince of the Frankish royal line remains alive, end quote. In other words, if the real Merovingians let you take over Paris, then they were never real Merovingians in the first place. At this, Gundervold's allies stepped in. Mamelus raised his arm and boxed the bishop across the ears, like he was a disobedient child. Quote, It is not right for so stupid and debased a man as you to give such an answer to a great king. End quote. Desiderius then stood up too, and together they began to beat the bishop, torture him with jabs from their spears, before eventually tying him up and banishing him from his own city. All of his, and much of the church's possessions, were seized to fund their war effort, and the bishopric was made vacant for an ally of theirs. Magnolf's principled stance cost him dearly, and his city soon fell in line. Wado, the last major official with the princess Rigunth, still trapped here since Desiderius had beggared her, joined Gundervold as well. Her last protector gone, Gundervold sent the young woman into exile as well, seizing her treasure for himself in its entirety. With the wind at his back, notable allies, and plenty of cash money, the usurper's chances were looking better and better. Skipping over an uncomfortable section where Gundervold and his buddies rob an old man for some holy relics, the usurper settled into Bordeaux and began doing some administration. Magnolf was only the beginning. In an effort to consolidate his authority over the region he had captured, he began removing hostile churchmen and replacing them with friendly or more compliant men. This is a clear sign that he was not some foreigner with no concept of how politics worked in Gaul. He understood well that the church's support not only would help solve much of his legitimacy problems, it would also help limit any opposition while he went off to deal with Guntram. And deal with him he eventually would. His previous messengers had been caught 
and tortured by Guntram as they had tried to sneak through Gaul. So, the time for subtlety was coming to an end. Gundervold sent two more messengers, this time directly to Guntram, holding consecrated wands, a Frankish custom indicating that they should not be attacked or molested in any kind of way. Despite this, they were still presented to Guntram in chains, but they were allowed to give their message. Quote, Gundervold, who has only recently arrived from the east, maintains that he is the son of Clothar, your own father. He has sent us to demand that portion of Clothar's kingdom which is his due. You must know that unless you hand it over, he will come to attack you at the head of an army. All the most powerful men of that region of Gaul which lies beyond the Dordogne have rallied to his standard. This is the message which he sends to you. When we meet on the battlefield, God will make it clear whether or not I am King Clothar's son. End quote. This lengthy speech really just reflects the realities we already knew about Gundervold. Whether or not he is lying about actually being Clothar's son is impossible to tell, but he certainly wasn't lying about having an army or being supported by most of the important nobles from the southern part of Gaul. Guntram was, predictably, furious. Again, violating custom, he had the messengers tortured. Here was where they revealed that Rigolf had been forced into exile by Gundvold, as well as claiming that they knew that it was Guntram Boso who had invited Gundvold to Gaul, and he had gone to Constantinople with that express purpose. We have already heard this claim, so it is not surprising. Whether it is true or not is also up for debate, though I think if it is untrue, it's one hell of a coincidence. Still, Guntramboso is not powerful or forward-thinking enough to come up with such a plan. The true culprit is still out there. And we're going to end there this week. I know we all want to find out what happens with Gundval, but I promise, next episode for sure. Then we'll see the confrontation between Guntram and his nephew Childebert II. We'll see the confrontation between Gundervold and the forces of Guntram. And we'll see the confrontation between my burning need to explain absolutely everything and the time constraints I place on each episode. See you then. <laughs>